All right, so um, I want to welcome everybody once again to the African History Network show. It is Sunday, May 1st, 2022, and we are live. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. Welcome to the African History Network show. So on today's show, we're going to pick up a uh, story that we talked about on Thursday. The, the, the story came out on April 26th, dealing with Harvard University and um, their involvement in slavery, a 134-page report. I talked about this some on our Thursday show. We're going to discuss it more today. Uh, 134 page uh, report that deals with the uh, 79 people, many of them uh, Africans, that Harvard University uh, and leaders at Harvard University and staff and things like this uh, were involved in owning. Okay. And the uh, it lists some of the names of the Africans who were owned also. Um, the report by a committee of Harvard faculty members released on Tuesday is Harvard's effort to begin redressing the wrongs of the past, as some other universities have been doing for decades. So there's a good article from uh, the New York Times and also a good one from the Washington Post uh, on this subject, if we look at this one here uh, from the New York Times, Harvard details its ties uh, to slavery and its plans for redress. Harvard details its ties to slavery and its plans for redress. The university is committing $100 million for an endowed legacy of slavery fund. Uh, its report carefully avoided treading on direct uh, financial reparations for descendants of enslaved people. So if we look here uh, at it, we're looking at the, the main article from the New York Times on this. Uh, it says the report by a committee, let's see, let me back up here. Um, so it starts out and it talks about some of the names of the people who were enslaved. Uh, you have names like Venus, Juba, Caesar, Sicily. Then there are, then you have slaves who were named by only first names, sometimes, or, or sometimes no name at all. Like you had one uh, African slave named the Moor, M-O-O-R, the Moor. Or you will have one called a little boy, okay? Now, in another column are the names of the ministers and presidents, uh, and donors of Harvard University who enslaved people in the 17th and 18th centuries. Now, Increase Mather is the first name that they list here. And Increase Mather was the, his name was Increase, I-N-C-R-E-A-S-C. -E -E. I don't, had some strange names back then. But Increase Mather was the uh, first president of Harvard University. Okay, now we know Harvard was founded in uh 1636 and uh increase mather was the first president of harvard university he was president of harvard university from 1692 to 1701 all right now you have uh governor john winthrop uh you have william brattle now these names are so powerful and revered they still adorn buildings today what study shows is the involvement of different aspects of American society involved in slavery. But it also, when we look at the uh, article from 
uh, the second article from the New York Times called The Major Findings of Harvard's Report on Ties to Slavery. The Major Findings on Harvard's Report on Its Ties to Slavery. This second article uh, goes in and talks about how you had Europeans here in this land who were loaning money to uh, British slave owners and European slave owners in the Caribbean enslaving African people. And so African slave labor in the Caribbean, they, it shows how it was benefiting white people here in this country, even though those African slaves in the Caribbean didn't come here. So there's a section, the university benefited from plantation owners. This, the, this second article really goes through and highlights the main um, uh, findings, the, the main takeaways, okay? Slavery was part of daily life at the university, at Harvard University. Uh, they deal with how uh, four Harvard University presidents own slaves, four, F-O-U-R, four Harvard University presidents owned enslaved people. The committee found at least 41 prominent people associated with Harvard who enslaved people. They included four, F-O-U-R, four Harvard presidents, such as Increase Mather, president of Harvard University from 1692 to 1701, and Benjamin Wadsworth, president from 1725 to 1737. Three governors, John Winthrop, Joseph Dudley, and John Leverett, uh, William Brattle, who was minister of First Church. Now here you have a white minister owning slaves. William Brattle, minister of First Church um, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Edward Wigglesworth, professor of divinity. So I'm not sure if he was preaching to them to be good slaves. I'm, I'm not sure, but Edward Wigglesworth, professor of divinity, John Withrop, professor of mathematics and natural philosophy, Edward Hopkins, founder of the Hopkins Foundation, and Isaac Royal Jr., who funded the first professorship of law at Harvard. And, and Isaac Royal Jr.'s family got rich from uh, the slave trade. Now, I, I want to go here to clip number one, Jalen, from WCVB Channel 5, um, yeah, this is out of uh, the Cambridge, Massachusetts area. Uh, Harvard releases landmark report detailing past ties to slavery. Let's go to clip number one, please. Harvard students and faculty received the 130-page report in an email. Many said they were glad to see the country's oldest university owning up to its role in slavery. For me, especially as a student of color, um, I wish that this had happened a lot sooner. Harvard researchers say they found from the university's founding in 1636 to when slavery was outlawed in Massachusetts in 1783, university leaders owned 70 enslaved people, both Native Americans and blacks. The university also invested in industries that relied on enslaved labor and took money from wealthy donors with ties to slavery. The truth is that slavery played a significant part in our institutional history. The truth is that the legacy of slavery continues to influence the world. In a video message, Harvard's president stopped short of issuing a direct apology. He did promise the university will set aside $100 million for further research and to try to undo some of slavery's ongoing effects, including by bringing students from historically black colleges to study at Harvard for up to a year. I don't think it can ever be completely fixed, but definitely it's moving towards the right path. 
Harvard follows other universities, such as Georgetown, the Princeton Theological Seminary, and the University of Virginia, in trying to make amends. I think Harvard was late to the game a little bit of this report, uh, later than other universities in the, uh, in the region and nationwide who've been grappling with this question. Harvard declined to make anyone who worked on this report available for an interview today. Now, compared to Harvard's $50 billion endowment, this $100 million investment represents about 0.2%. Okay, so um, Harvard has a $50 billion investment. This represents about 0.2%, but it, it is a start. And what it does is, is there's a lot of history behind this that's why we're looking at this there's a lot of history behind this um we're going to go to clip two in just a second here Jalen. Jalen, i want to go back to uh the first article because i've highlighted some things here in my notes uh calling numbers 313-778-7600 uh if you have a question or comment 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a, a question or comment and also if you attended this weekend's one Africa Power and Unity Conference uh, here in Detroit. Now, those listening to 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF, uh, you heard the uh, commercials uh, being aired to promote the conference, especially uh, commercials uh, being aired here on the African History Network show. And uh, Taki Grant and Felicia Harden did a great job uh, uh, also this weekend. And Professor James Small, his presentation was fantastic. Dr. Leonard Jeffries, Professor Kaba Hiawatha Kamenez, presentation was excellent as well. But if we go back here and look at uh, this first article, um, I'm gonna scroll down here. Okay, so the university benefited, let me see which one. Okay, I wanna go to the back to the first one, just a second. I have five articles here uh, that I'm looking at. Okay, so the report calls for spending the money in a multitude of tracks, the $100 million. By tracing the modern descendants, modern day descendants of enslaved people at Harvard University, uh, by building uh, in Harvard University, by building memorials and curriculum to honor and expose the past, okay, uh, by creating change programs between students and faculty members at Harvard and those at HBCUs and by collaborating with uh, trial with tribal colleges uh, and by forging partnerships to improve schools in the American South and West Indies where plantation owners and Boston Brahmins made their intertwined fortunes on the backs of enslaved people. Okay, where plantation owners and Boston Brahmins made their intertwined fortunes on the backs of enslaved people. Uh, we're going to continue this on the other side of the break. Also, we'll go to the phone lines. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, WFDF. I'm Michael M. Hotep. We'll be back in a few minutes. Jeanette Davis is a well-established author with six published books. Black Survival in White America from Past History to the Next Century was published in 1995 and it delves into the history of African Americans before slavery up to contemporary times. The Great Divide Between Blacks and Whites was released in 2008 and her autobiography, Black Just Like My Mama, was published in 2010. Soulful Journey 
The Business of Beings, was released in December 2021, and her two latest books, Echoes from the Heart, Love Throws Poetry, and Master Being Human, were both published in January of 2022. Jeanette Davis' writings delve deeply into the psyche of black people from ancient to contemporary times. She cuts no corners and leaves no stones unturned in relating truth, letting the chips fall where they may on both African and European doorsteps. Order Jeanette Davis's books today at Amazon.com. Search for Jeanette Davis and get to know her work today. Welcome back to the Amp History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. All right, it is Sunday, May 1st, 2022, and we are live. I had a very, very busy weekend. Uh, I was at the two-day One Africa Power and Unity Conference here in Detroit. So you heard me talk about it, and we we interviewed a lot of the scholars uh, the past two weeks who are going to uh, who are going to do presentations there today. So we had a fantastic turnout for the first conference, and uh, people learned a lot as well. I mean, a lot of our listeners here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF, but then uh, also people who watch me on YouTube, watch the show on YouTube, you know, listen to the podcast, things like that. So got to talk to a lot of people all all weekend. Uh, call in numbers 313-778-7600. Uh, if you have a question or comment, once again, 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. Uh, before we go to clip number two, I want to go to the phone lines. Let's go to Brother Jeff on line one. Jeff, welcome to the African History Network show. Thanks for holding. Tell us where you're calling from. Yeah. Hey, I'm calling here from Southfield, Michigan. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. You're on the air. Yeah, well, what I want to say here, I'm I'm a mixed descent. Okay, you're yeah. breaking up a little bit. You said um, what was that? You said you're breaking up a little bit, Jeff. I said, I am of mixed descent. Mixed descent. Yes. Okay. And and and, and what I want to say is that I I think that it's a travesty here mm-hmm. that you know you guys keep on you know you keep on crying about slavery. You know, Who, who's crying? Slavery's not a bad thing. You said slavery's, slavery's not a bad thing. Not a bad... No, it's not. Okay. Because see, if we still had slavery, then you guys would be in order. See, okay. There wouldn't be no Jeff, killing. Jeff, Jeff. Now, when you first called in, you said you're of mixed descent. What you should have said is you are mixed up, because that's what you are. Thanks. Have a good day, Jeff. Get your phone fixed. Also, have a good day. See, that's how you deal with trolls like that. You can call in here if you want to act a fool. You're going to get dealt with. I don't play that. Go call somebody else to show with that nonsense. And get a good phone when you call in also, Jeff. All right. You listen to the African History Network show, 313-778-7600, if you want to call in. Now, you want to act a fool, you're going to get embarrassed here. We got people watching all around the world. You're going to get, you're going to get embarrassed, okay? Um, and, you know, how many... African people does Jeff want to be the slave of? How many African people, if Jeff, if if slavery was good, then how many African people does Jeff want to be the slave of? Who's going to keep white supremacy in control? 
So yeah, you, I was with Dr. Leonard Jeffries, Professor James Small all weekend. This is the wrong time to mess with me, mess with, mess with me with some BS. I'm just, I'm just warning you right now. Okay. I was with them all weekend. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, uh, let's go back to, uh, like a real discussion. You know, I mean, I've been doing radio 12 years. I, uh, I've dealt with trolls. Okay. So that ain't nothing new. That's, that's what happens. But let's get back to the business at hand. Um, if we go back and look at this, now, now the first article on this, this is the big one. This is what a lot of uh, other articles cited. This one here from the New York Times. Harvard details its ties to slavery and its plans for redress. All right. Now, if we go to, um, if we go back and scroll down here, the report by a committee of Harvard faculty members released on Tuesday, April 26th, is Harvard's effort to begin redressing the wrongs of the past, as some of as some other universities have been doing for decades. Now, as part of the process, the university's governing corporation has pledged $100 million to create an endowed legacy of slavery fund, an endowed legacy of slavery fund that would allow scholars and students to bring Harvard's connections to slavery into the light for generations to come. Now, what a lot of people want to do is hide how this country, especially Europeans in this country, white people in this country, still benefit from the legacy of slavery. This is one of the reasons why you have the attack on what, well, the GOP, what Republicans call critical race theory, which is not even critical race theory. What they've done is, is they've taken the term critical race theory, which is a 40 year old legal analysis of how racism is encoded into various laws in this country and how those laws have a long lasting impact on the conditions of African-Americans, Latinos, non-white people in understanding that legacy. It's a legal analysis is usually taught in law schools, uh, graduate schools, sometimes in the undergraduate level, but it's a legal analysis. Okay. It's not something taught in K through 12. Just teaching American history is not critical race theory. That's a, that's a misunderstanding of critical race theory. There was a, uh, Christopher Rousseau or Christopher Rufo, I think his last name, Rufo. Uh, this is one of the idiots who's an architect of critical race theory. There was a tweet that he put out back in March 2021. We've talked about it here on uh, this show before. And uh, I'm going to try to pull this up here. So what they've done is distorted what uh, critical race theory is. So anytime, and he said they wanted they want to make it so that um, anytime you see something in the news that uh, is dealing with race or racism or something like that, that they don't like Christopher Rufo, R-U-F-O. Okay. Uh, the, these series of tweets right here, though, for those watching on Facebook and YouTube. All right. Let me pull this up. This is, um, uh, one of the ways all this really escalated with, uh, critical race theory and okay. That's not the one I want. I want, uh, it was one tweet. Uh, here, let me pull this up here. It was one tweet, uh, from this one here from March 
2015, March 15, 2021, I should say, March 15, 2021. So uh, Christopher F. Rufo, R-U-F-O, you can look up his name. He said in this tweet for March 15, 2021, the goal G-O-A-L, is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper, like a January 6, 2021 insurrection took place. I guess maybe he's calling that crazy. I don't know. But the goal is to have the public read something in the newspaper uh, and immediately think critical race theory. And immediately think critical race theory. We have decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. Now, what he should have said, little Chris, is Chris Cross or uh, uh, crossed Chris or whatever you want to call a mixed up Chris. Maybe he's related to Jeff. Um, what he should have said is unpopular with white Americans. That's what he really should have said but he didn't want to tip his hand and tip you off to what was coming. But this is what was at the beginning of this whole fervor over critical race theory. All right. Now uh, let's go to, uh, let's go to clip number two here. Now this is from uh, clip number two is from NBC news. This is Joshua Johnson on NBC news. And uh, Harvard announces $100 million fund after new study finds ties to slavery. Let's go to clip two, Jalen. America's oldest university is confronting one of its darkest legacies. Harvard just completed a deep dive into its past and it discovered some painful truths and announced plans to address them. The report is called Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery. It looks at the school's deep connections to wealth generated from slave labor. This report shows that Harvard's faculty and staff enslaved more than 70 people during the 17th and 18th centuries while slavery was legal in Massachusetts. Harvard says it will now spend $100 million to address its ties to slavery. Based on the report's findings, those ties run very, very deep. The university says it was directly invested in sugar and rum industries in the Caribbean, as well as cotton and railroads in the U.S., in the first half of the 1800s, slavery profiteers accounted for more than a third of Harvard's private donations. In other words, Harvard's ties to enslavement helped fund its rise to prominence. Now, other prestigious universities have made similar findings, including Brown and Georgetown. And more than 80 schools have joined a consortium called Universities Studying Slavery. So what's behind this wider movement? And why now? Joining us to discuss it now is Katie Mangan, a senior writer for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Ms. Mangan, welcome. Good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be with you. What have some of the early reactions been like to Harvard's report? Well, it was a, a truly remarkable report that came out today when uh, President uh, Lawrence Baco released this uh, statement and also a, a 130-page report outlining how the university has uh, not only had historical ties to slavery, but been complicit and perpetuating what he called um, profoundly immoral practices 
Okay. Uh, these are very, very strong pause, words. Pause it right there, Jade. I know we're coming up on the break. Just back it up about 20, 30 seconds or so. We're gonna t- we'll continue this other side of the break. We'll go back to the phone lines. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation. WFDF 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. If you have a question, comment, even dumbass people can call in too. You know, you may get embarrassed, but <laughs> you can call in if you want to. <laughs> this, this is the wrong day to mess with me. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a question or comment. This is the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation and Future Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Jeanette Davis is a well-established author with six published books. Black Survival in White America from Past History to the Next Century was published in 1995, and it delves into the history of African Americans before slavery up to contemporary times. The Great Divide Between Blacks and Whites was released in 2008, and her autobiography, Black Just Like My Mama, was published in 2010. Soulful Journey, The Business of Beings was released in December 2021 and her two latest books, Echoes from the Heart, Love Throws Poetry, and Master Being Human were both published in January of 2022. Jeanette Davis' writings delve deeply into the psyche of black people from ancient to contemporary times. She cuts no corners and leaves no stones unturned in relating truth letting the chips fall where they may on both African and European doorsteps. Order Jeanette Davis's books today at Amazon.com. Search for Jeanette Davis and get to know her work today. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry. It's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me. She's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, WFDF. Okay, so right before the break, we were uh, sharing this uh, clip here from uh, NBC News. Uh, Harvard announces $100 million fund after new study finds ties to slavery. We're going to go back to that clip, and then when we uh, finish that, we'll go to the phone lines. We'll go to Abdul and Richard uh, on the phone, uh, on the the line. So uh, let's go back to this clip. It was a, a truly remarkable report that came out today. When, uh, President uh, Lawrence Baco released his uh, statement and also a, a 130-page report outlining how the university has uh, not only had historical ties to slavery, but been complicit and perpetuating what he called um, profoundly immoral practices. Uh, these are very, very strong words uh, coming from Harvard. and long overdue, a lot of people would say. Um, Harvard certainly is not the first uh, university to grapple with its ties to slavery, but this is certainly one of the 
most extensive and um, really powerful uh, reports that we've seen. We heard uh, in this report that a benefactor of the law school enslaved a woman named Cuba, and one of that woman's ancestors spoke today about the study. Here's part of what they said. Certainly it's been, it was elation at first in terms of just understanding, wow, uh, our family was connected, you know, to this whole, uh, this whole story. But then, you know, after settling back, you know, it, you, it's, it's an emotional trip. Uh, when I read, you know, certainly some of the uh, hardships that they went through, you know, how cool they were treated, even though they were up north and not down south. Slavery is slavery. And the type of, you know, cruelty that they experienced, not as harsh, I'm sure, as working in the uh, fields of Alabama and Mississippi, but, you know, working on Brattle Street um, in Cambridge, you know, had his, had his very difficult times. That's so powerful for him to be able to point to an ancestor and know that piece of his study. But beyond the personal impact on the descendants of these slaves, what impact is this report meant to have? I mean, it, it would be really easy for something like this to be done, make everyone feel good, and then that's the end of it. The report came out with some very specific recommendations of what they wanted to see the university done. And the final recommendation was to hold Harvard accountable, to have regular reports and uh, analyses to make sure that Harvard is doing what it says it's going to do. And at this point, they're not talking so much about direct payments to the descendants of enslaved people, but more a matter of researching and trying to locate as many people as possible to try to bring more stories like the ones that we just heard to light so that this becomes a more uh, concrete and more tangible um, issue when you're dealing with real people, real stories, uh, that's one of the things that we're seeing other universities do is to spend a lot of time trying to track down these descendants, hear their stories, and get them involved in uh, the steps moving forward that Harvard has pledged to take using this very, very sizable amount of money. If we could back up to that list we were just showing in terms of what Harvard plans to do with the $100 million that it has committed to this project, including establishing a legacy of slavery fund, creating memorializations and curricula around enslaved people, developing partnerships with historically black colleges and universities, and also connecting to native communities. I learned from this report that Harvard's charter said it was supposed to educate white and Indian residents of the colonies, but only one person of tribal descent received a degree in Harvard's earlier days. Is there a timeline for the use of this money, or are there any kind of guardrails on where this money goes, or is that still being figured out? As far as I can tell, that's still being figured out, um, but they are going to move ahead with these steps. This $100 million that has been dedicated, that some of it's going to be freed up immediately to take some initial steps, and some of it will be used later on. But a lot of the talk really is about scholarship and teaching, uh, teaching more classes, uh, more teacher training, uh, reaching out more to historically black colleges and universities and trying to strengthen those ties with exchange programs to bring more faculty members uh, and students uh, to Harvard, uh, really just trying to study the matter and know exactly where they stand before they get down to the, the details about specifically how the money is going to be used more in terms of the reparations that people are really eager to see. I should note, by the way, that NBC News did reach out to Harvard University and asked if someone could be made available for tonight's broadcast. The university declined. 
but that invitation stands. Before I have to let you go, I wonder where this sits in the middle of all these other efforts to try to address the legacy of slavery in higher education. We put on the screen some of what Brown and Georgetown have done. There have been a number of efforts to deal with economic gaps, students from disadvantaged backgrounds, Harvard and Stanford are two of the schools that have said, if you get admitted, we will come up with the money to let you in. You do not have to worry about paying for your education. How does this fit into all of the rest of those efforts to sort of close some of these racial gaps before we go? I think it's a very important part in terms of, of trying to really um, come to terms with the legacy of discrimination and uh, just to, to make very, very real why it is that colleges are taking all of these steps to try to plug equity gaps. These equity gaps um, are, are only growing and have grown more since COVID. And so I think it's just there's a new urgency right now to make sure that universities are not just paying lip service uh, to these efforts to close equity gaps, but that they're really doing something about it. And I think the feeling is um, that bringing these stories to light and bringing uh, these people to tell their stories is only going to help um, solidify the resolve of universities to take the steps that they're being called on to take to um, plug these, these longstanding and, and, in fact, widening equity gaps. I should note, by the way, the report is online at legacyofslavery.harvard.edu. It is a remarkable piece of research. Like slavery.harvard.edu. Catherine Mangan of the Chronicle of Higher Education, thank you for making time for us. All right. So that's from uh, NBC News, April 26, 2022. Uh, we're coming up on a break. When we come back from the break, uh, we're going to continue this discussion because it talks about a Caribbean, uh, the ties of uh, some wealthy white men here in the U.S. and Africans in the Caribbean. It, it, it talks about that and sugar and sugar planters and rum distillers, things like this, the Caribbean connection. We'll also go to the phone lines. We'll go to Abdul and Richard on the phone. Call in numbers 313-778-7600, 313-778-7600. If you have a question or comment, listen to the African History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. STEM Forward, helping our community find their place in the emerging fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Join us for our monthly live stream on our website, stemforwardedu.org. Watch, subscribe, share. Also join our mailing list to stay up to date with STEM resources and opportunities. STEM Forward, the future is now. Watch, subscribe, share. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry, it's larger than the art world, and I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre, I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me and she's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. 
and African History Network show with current events in history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Unfortunately, many people confuse what racism is. Racism is a power structure. It was laws and policies that put us in this predicament. It's going to be laws and policies that take us out. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. We have it all for 910 AM Superstation. WFDF Farmington Hills, Detroit, 910 AM Superstation, a division of Adele Media. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 910 AM Superstation or Adele Media. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation WFDF. It's Sunday, May 1st, 2022. And we are live. Hey, I want to remind you that uh, we have a new section of my 10-week online course that I teach on Saturdays, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, what they didn't teach you in school. So class number one was April 23rd, and uh, we didn't have class this weekend because I was at a conference all weekend. But class number two is Saturday, May 7th. So as soon as you register, you can watch class number one. And I um, talked to some of my listeners uh uh, this weekend at the conference, so we registered a few people also for uh, the, the the courses. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. So we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch them anytime, even after the 10-week online course is over with. You still have full access. You can watch the class. You can join us in class live, Saturdays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time if you want to, but if you can't because you're working or something like that, that's fine. Uh, and then on Sunday, uh, Sunday, May 8th, we have class number one of from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968, starting up. And that class is on sale, uh, $80, regular $130 also. Uh, we have a bundle pack where you can register for both classes for uh, $120, okay? Um, that's... Um, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power, 1865 to 1968. All right. So I want to go uh, to the phone lines. Let's go to uh, Abdul before we go back to this uh, story dealing with Harvard University and uh, in the 134-page report detailing uh, people tied to Harvard, only 79 uh, enslaved people in the uh, 1700s. Um, let's go to the phone lines. Let's go to Abdul Line One. Abdul, welcome to the African History Network show. Will you, tell us where you're calling from. Peace and love, peace and love, man. I'm actually calling from Detroit, man. Yes, we got the conference along yeah. with good brother Michael. Yeah, I met Michelle. you. It was a pleasure of, of meeting you. Yes, you and, too, brother. Uh, all I want to say, man, I want to be real clear, mm-hmm. is that if you didn't make this conference, the energy and the synergy. That was that was going through uh, 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 levels, hey man. That you that you, that you just had to be here, man, to to get the experience. But if you watched it through, uh, yeah, YouTube, the live uh, streaming, YouTube mm-hmm. live streaming. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. You know, you you, you can get a gist of what I'm talking about. But I just wanted to let my brother know I'm supporting, and I have been supporting. And I had I had a, a great I had a beautiful chance to meet me uh, personally. Yes. But I love the work you're doing, Mike. And uh, I don't want to hold up hold the line up no more. But uh, the conference was beautiful, and we're looking yes. forward to the next one. <laughs> Thanks. Enjoy your evening. All right, Abdul. Thanks, Thanks for calling in. It was good meeting you. Also, okay. Um, let's go to 
uh richard hey richard thanks for holding tell us where you're calling from richard oh i'm calling from detroit and i'm a product of um southern university okay. but i'm old dinosaur you're young but uh <laughs> we were taught how a lot of institutions and like big businesses i think it was Aetna, which okay. at one time was an atlantic fleet there were people in California that were some black families. Once they got the Freedom of Information Act, they tracked these uh, companies down. And I remember one family in Oakland got $9 million. The, and the sad part about it, the Mormons in uh, Utah, they have these type of, I don't know what you call it, records, that genealogy. They have a little record where you can go there and, and do the research. And okay. they have some of these people uh in that manner to like get reparations okay the thing about it is i don't ever think the united states government is ever going to like like a stimulus check whatever you call it give every person that is descended of african slaves any paycheck no that's not you can trace from uh lyndon bain johnson when he was in office the poverty programs i guarantee you from that time all over to now as we speak they probably have spent trillions trying to catch people up and everybody else rips them off you know like i feel sorry for black lives matter founding when the people are now being investigated for like you know all these type of monies that they got it's, it's painful to see that but on all ends people are trying to bait race bait whites black anybody if they can get money mm-hmm. but i think the problem is that the black colleges should make all the other white colleges in those states come up with the type of programs that I think you're talking about to look at how they say, look at Grambling College, their sports facility, and look at what? LSU. When if they could say, okay, let's give these black colleges the same type of, how you say, facilities and resources and, and have them in those type of positions. That way you can kind of catch people up. But one thing is bad. All those black athletes, right. they don't go to black college. They want to go to a white college, and then they want to go to the pros. And the sad part about it, none of them would ever say, we need to own the teams. Colin Kaepernick never said anything about owning the team. I, I admire him, but the next best thing is own the team. There was a such thing as the Negro League, and guess who owned it? Blacks. Right, Thank right. you for your time. All right. Thanks for calling. Thanks for calling. Now, two things. One, yes, there's uh, an investigation into some Black Lives Matter leadership buying a $6 million property, something like that. I don't want to uh, cast the entire Black Lives Matter movement under a cloud of investigation or mishandling money, things like this, because that's dealing with a few people. Okay, so and we don't know the outcome of the investigation either. So I don't, I don't want to. Uh, not saying Richard was trying to do that, but I don't want to uh, try to cast that cloud over the entire movement. One, two. Um, Brian Flores, who was suing the NFL, has been making ownership and the lack of African American ownership an issue, and he's been exposing this and calling attention to this. Okay, so even though Colin Kaepernick may not have um brian flores is all right now i want to uh we're going to stay on this topic for a few more minutes and i want to go to the second story which is going to take a, a larger segment and uh so we'll get to that in just a minute now i, I want to go back to um 
let's see, I want to look at this other article here from New York Times. This is uh, the major findings of Harvard's report on its ties to slavery. So that is the second article right here. Okay, the major findings of Harvard's report on its ties to slavery. Harvard University issued a 134-page report investigating its ties to slavery and its legacy. Here are the key findings. Also, actually, there were three things I wanted to uh, comment on regarding um, Richard's call. The third one, because I had to pull up this uh, article to so I can make my point here. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about California, the California task force and uh, a five, four ruling dealing with who they would uh, distribute reparations to in the state of California. And was it going to be to all the African-Americans in California or is it just going to be by lineage, meaning that you have to prove that uh, you were descended of someone who was enslaved in California, African-American descendant of someone who uh, was uh, enslaved in this country. Well, the, and I just saw the article here. Where is that one? Um, okay. It was New York times article. Yeah. California task force votes to offer reparations only to descendants of uh, enslaved people. Okay. Only two only two descendants of enslaved people. The decision came after weeks of debate about whether all black Californians should receive reparations. So they're doing it based upon lineage as opposed to race. All right. Now, we talked about this here on this show, but also Camila Moore, who is the chair of the uh, of the task force. She was on Roland Martin Unfiltered. And they went through it and did an in-depth discussion about this. The reason why they had to do it based upon lineage as opposed to based upon race is because based upon the 1964 Civil Rights Act, it's illegal to have a race-based program, okay? Meaning that uh, a program or um, benefits or something like that for only one race of people. Okay, unless maybe it's based upon treaties for like Native Americans or something like this. Okay, now some people may say, well, the uh, the Japanese they got uh, uh, reparations, okay, for uh, being in internment camps uh, in World War II, okay, and they were that was a that was a bill that passed uh, Congress in 1988. Uh, under uh, President Ronald Reagan, and uh, you had about 80, 82,000 uh, Japanese who received uh, $20,000, 82,250 as of February 19th, 1999. I'm looking at the uh, memo from the Department of Justice. They received $1.6 billion, okay? But if you get past, once you get past headlines, and actually read the document, it only went to those who were actually put in the internment camps. It didn't go to all Japanese. This is the fundamental mistake that people make and the pipe dream that's being sold about reparations like crack. This is why 
with California, they had to do it based upon lineage as opposed to you just being Japanese because they had to go directly to those who were harmed. All right. Now, this is uh, I'm going to try to pull this up here so everybody can see this, because if you're waiting on a reparations check in the mail and uh, uh, I got some magic beans, I can tell you uh, that ain't happening now. This is a 10 year program to compensate. Let me pull this up. 10 year uh, program to compensate Japanese Americans interned during World War II uh, closes its doors. That's the name of this document. And I thought I had this bookmarked. Okay, this right here. This is from justice.gov, which is the official website of the Department of Justice. They have all types of information there. I encourage people to go to justice.gov as well as whitehouse.gov. Uh, you, you do some research there, you're going to learn a lot. But this right here, okay, February 19, 1999, 10-year program to compensate Japanese Americans interned during World War II closes its doors. After paying out more than $1.6 billion to more than 82,250 persons of, of, of Japanese ancestry who were interned, who were interned during World War II, the Justice Department's Office of Redress Administration has officially closed its doors. So the bill passed Congress in 1988 and was signed into law by uh, Ronald Reagan. The redress, the redress program, which was established by the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, acknowledges, apologizes, and makes restitution for the fundamental injustice of the evacuation, relocation, and internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. The Justice Department's Office of Redress Administration was charged with administering the tenure program. Okay, so they go through, explain that. Um, it was, okay, since the program's inception, it has provided uh, $20,000 in redress to 82,219 eligible claimants, totaling $1.6 billion. Then they go through and stipulate what the uh, requirements were to receive the restitution. In order to have been eligible for restitution, an applicant had to be, had to have been alive on August 10th, 1988, a U.S. citizen or permanent resident alien during the internment period, okay, from December 7th, 1941 to June 30th, 1946, a U.S. citizen or permanent resident alien during the internment period. So that meant that it didn't go to all Japanese Americans, okay? You had to be here in the U.S. during that internment period. A person of Japanese ancestry, or the spouse or parent of a person of Japanese ancestry and evacuated and evacuated, relocated, interned or otherwise deprived of liberty or property as a result of federal government action during the internment period and based solely on the Japanese ancestry, meaning that you had to be part of those who were actually harmed during that period of time, being interned during that period of time. December 7th, 1941 to June 30th, 1946. Okay. It didn't go to all Japanese Americans. All right. So you have to understand the difference. That's why it's important to read. We'll deal with this on the other side of the break. Listen to the African History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. 
Abundant Capital Group is a real estate investment company with over 20 years of experience in real estate. They specialize in two areas of real estate. One, they solve real estate problems with creative financing solutions that give the seller the most money for their property. And two, they show individuals how to get a higher rate of return on their investment capital with real estate note investing. If you are looking to sell or need to sell your property, here is what they provide. Market value offer, even if you have little or no equity, they typically pay all closing costs, which can be thousands of dollars. They close on a date of the seller's choosing and the seller does not have to be out of the house at the time of closing. They take the property in an as-is condition and the seller is not required to make any repairs. Give them a call or email them today for a free consultation and see how they can help you with your real estate needs. Call them at 973-475-8488. That's 973-475-8488. Visit their website, AbundantCapitalGroup.com. That's AbundantCapitalGroup.com. And email them at ACG at AbundantCapitalGroup.com. Follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Abundant Capital Group. What does self-care mean to you? To us, it's an opportunity to reconnect with nature. A chance to create something remarkable. At Sage and Elm Apothecary, our handcrafted skin care and household products immerse you in Earth's sweetest nectar, connecting you to nature in a way you never imagined. See for yourself and visit us at sageandelmapothecary.com. Welcome back to the African History Network show uh, right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. Okay, so... Uh, right before the break, we were talking about um, Harvard University, the $100 million fund uh, dealing with um, slavery, okay, and uh, 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 correcting the wrongs of slavery. And it was detailing uh, the impact, it was detailing the connections between prominent uh, people, uh, presidents of Harvard and, and those who were faculty, things like this and slavery. OK, but I was we uh, ended the break uh, right before the break. We were talking about Japanese-Americans because many people say, oh, well, Japanese-Americans got reparations for uh, being put into internment camps. So this piece from justice.gov department of justice website lays out what the stipulations were and these were people who were still alive who were actually those put into internment camps it didn't go to like future generations of japanese things like this it didn't go to all japanese all right it was eighty-two thousand two hundred and fifty japanese who received twenty thousand dollars it was a total of 1.6 billion dollars paid out to 82,250 persons of Japanese ancestry. And they laid out the stipulations, okay? Now, then you also have some people who will say, oh, well, the Jews got uh, money for reparations from the US government. And then when when I ask them the details, they can't tell me any. Or I hear people say, oh, 
well, President Obama gave the Jews uh, uh, reparations. I'm like, really? So then I asked them, well, explain to me what happened. They can't tell me. It was $12 million spread out over five years, $2.5 million a year. And it was a bill that passed the House of Representatives, passed the U.S. Senate, and was signed into law by President Barack Obama. Did it go to all Jews in the U.S.? No, it didn't go to all the Jews in the U.S. It went to, it was about 13,000 who were actually uh, uh, Holocaust, what was it? Some 130,000 Holocaust survivors are living in the U.S. according to the government estimates. And it was, there's a document that gets deeper into this. I want the other document. There's about 13,000 Holocaust survivors that received the money. It was... um, uh, $12 million over five years. Uh, there was another document that's uh, more detailed than this one that I want to find here. Um, where is that one? And it was from Debbie Washington Schultz's office also. When you actually go through, this is why I, I, I explain to people, you, you have to read this stuff. Okay, you just can't go by headlines. Um, let me see here. Pull this one up, but it was it was a bill that passed the House of Representatives, passed the U.S. Senate, and was signed into law. Uh, and it was a total of twelve million dollars over five years, and it went to about thirteen thousand survivors of the Holocaust who who were living in the U.S. That's what it was. So. It, went, it didn't go to all the Jews in the U.S., anything like that. Um, and then when we look here at what happened in California, in California, they're going to have to do it based upon, um, in California, they, they're going to have to do it based upon lineage as opposed to race because it violates the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And if they pass it, it's going to get overturned in court, which is what a lot of people talking about reparations don't seem to understand. The judicial branch of government interprets law from the federal branch of government and the legislative branch of government. So if a law is deemed to be unconstitutional that the, that the legislative branch passes, it can get struck down in the judicial branch of government. So in a closely watched decision, the state's reparations task force voted Tuesday night to move forward with compensation for African-American descendants of enslaved people and descendants of free black people in, in living in the United States before the 19th century, before the 19th century. So if 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 you if your ancestors came here in in like 1902, OK, and they were of African descent, you wouldn't qualify in the state of California for this. If your ancestors came in 1898 or were here in 1898, then you would qualify for this living in California. This is a big deal as California's reparations effort is the first of its scale and is likely to serve as a model for the rest of the nation. Not to mention that Tuesday's decision was highly contentious. The vote five to four came after weeks of debate about whether reparations should be for all 2.6 million black Californians or limited to those who can trace their lineage to enslaved people. 
or limited to those who can trace their lineage to enslaved people. The panel ultimately decided to focus on those most hurt by slavery instead of more broadly addressing the effects of racism directed at black people. Quote, that's not the point of reparations. Reparations is responding to the injuries of a specific group. Jovan Scott Lewis uh, at University, uh, it was University of California Berkeley professor and task force member said during Tuesday's meeting, there's a community for who's, there's a, there's a community who for centuries has been demanding recognition. Now, in September 2020, California created the nine-member task force to study and recommend rec reparations. The panel is supposed to complete a report by the summer of 2023 that would detail that would detail who should get reparations, in what form, and in what amounts. Who should get reparations, in what form, and in what amounts. Now, um, when you go through and read this, it deals with the fact that, and this is something that Camila Moore said in the interview on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, if you do it based upon race, it violates the 1964 Civil Rights Act. So you have to do it based upon lineage to get around that. Now, they're going to be lawsuits anyway, but you're more on legal grounds if you do it by lineage. You have a better chance of the law that you pass not being overturned in court. OK, so this is why it's important to understand this. Uh, many on the panel bristled at the idea of excluding black Californians, given the widespread racism left behind by decades of slavery, a similar effort in Evanston, Illinois. It includes all black residents. OK, but in Evanston, Illinois, it it it, it in Evanston, it dealt with redlining victims of redlining in Evanston, Illinois as opposed to slavery, okay? The reason why they chose redlining in Evanston, Illinois, as opposed to slavery is because um, in Illinois, slavery was abolished in 1818. Evanston, Illinois, the city of Evanston, which today is a city of about 60,000 people and about 16% African-American, Evanston, Illinois wasn't founded until the 1840s. Evanston, Illinois did not have a history of slavery. They had a rampant history of housing discrimination and redlining. What's re once redlining was created by the federal government in about 1937, coming from the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Robin Ruth Simmons was the uh, councilwoman, African-American councilwoman in Evanston, Illinois, who initiated uh, that program that compensation program and they would uh, they would get uh, uh, a certain amount uh, of money towards buying a house. OK, I interviewed Robin Rue Simmons for an hour on this show. And we went down and we went through and broke down what it was and they were taking money generated from if I remember correctly, they were taking money generated from marijuana sales, taking some money from that to go towards this fund. OK, so they chose redlining because. And also the other thing, it was uh, the policy that they put in place was based upon about a 70 page study that was done on the history of redlining in Evanston, Illinois and housing discrimination, how it's still impacting African-Americans today. All right. So 
That's why in Everston they chose redlining instead of slavery. Now, there was people on social media that didn't read and jumped on there talking about should be for slavery. Well, you think a city of 60,000 people is going to have some type of reparations for slavery and the city didn't have a history of reparations? That's just you. You must be related to Jeff. They called in. That don't make no sense either. A city of 60,000, they're going to deal with a legacy of what happened in that city. Okay, not what happened in the state. That don't that doesn't make sense. Okay, you see, this is this is why a lot of the hashtags and all that stuff, when it really comes down to like actually trying to get something like to actually take place and get laws passed, it's entirely different. It sounds good in documentaries and on panel discussions and on shows and people that have no clue what they're talking about. But when you actually start trying to do something and you have to follow the law and deal with constraints. That stuff goes out the window. Okay. And unlike a lot of people, I'm somebody that's actually been involved in writing public policy for the city of Detroit. I was on the committee to write an executive order for the city of Detroit. It took us 13 months to do it. Okay. It took us a lot longer than we thought it was going to take. It went through a number of revisions. We had to work with the legal department. We had to work with different departments in the city. We had to work with the, with the unions as well. Okay. And then what we came out with is not what we had in mind when we first started doing the uh executive order okay but you but this you're dealing with reality all that stuff sounds real good in documentaries and all that stuff it don't it doesn't work like that in the real world this is the african history network show right here on 9 10 a.m superstation future radio when we come back i want to deal with this segment from uh, tiffany cross's show it was an african-american democrat african-american republican they were talking about biden harris administration policies and the black republican asked how have African-Americans benefited from the Biden-Harris administration policies? Okay. They didn't get into it deep there, but we're going to talk about it here and pick up our discussion from Thursday because we have the evidence. Listen to the African History Network show. We'll be back in a few minutes. What does self-care mean to you? To us, it's an opportunity to reconnect with nature. A chance to create something remarkable. At Sage and Elm Apothecary, our handcrafted skin care and household products immerse you in Earth's sweetest nectar, connecting you to nature in a way you never imagined. See for yourself and visit us at sageandelmapothecary.com. Ido Network International, in collaboration with STL Black Woman, DACA, and ACTA, present the Royal Pilgrimage to the Americas, August 24th through the 28th. The African kings and queens are coming to you for business, networking, and sharing of Pan-African ideals. The venue will be the illustrious En Garde Arts Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. A royal cultural experience and exhibitions, trade and investment opportunities in Africa, the Caribbean, and the Americas a Royal Pan-African Summit hosting keynote speakers, and a red carpet banquet. Come and witness our African Royal Coronation Ceremony. Register at www.idonetwork.org to book your ticket to wine and dine with African royalty. Vendor opportunities available. Get face-to-face -face with the royals who own the land and resources for business. Contact DACA for deal room information at 602-730-4572. <laughs> 
Welcome back to the African History Network show. All right. Um, so r- read the article from the uh, New York Times dealing with, uh, we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, the one from the New York Times dealing with uh, the California Task Force on Reparations. A lot of this stuff sounds good, you know, in theory, but then when you actually try to go through and read, read through read about what they went through to be able to get to this, to the decision that they came, came to. Okay. Watch interviews with Camila Moore. This stuff sounds real simple when people really don't understand how this stuff works. Um, other panelists, we go back to the article very quickly here. Other panelists expressed concerns that it would be difficult for descendants of enslaved people to prove their ancestry so they could qualify for payments. Others said they worried that barring some black Californians from reparations would cause unnecessary fighting within the black community. But after hours of debate, after hours of debate, those who wanted to limit the payments to the sentence of enslaved people pre- uh, prevailed. Camila Moore, a lawyer and task force chair, said that trying to solve larger problems of racial equity was not the panel's responsibility trying to solve larger problems of racial equity is not the panel's responsibility quote that's a whole other task force camille moore who's an attorney said during the meeting this is a reparations task force for the institution of slavery now california doesn't have a huge history of slavery may have had 1500 people uh uh enslaved because california comes into the union in 1850 as a free state Okay, California was part of Mexico. California becomes a territory of the U.S. because of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848, which ends the Mexican-American War. And the U.S. gets uh, the territory that makes up Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Utah, and Nevada from Mexico at the end of the Mexican-American War. All right. So California doesn't have... uh, you know, a big history of slavery, even though it was about 1500. Uh, there was an article from the conversation that that uh, we dealt with here on this show um, a couple of weeks ago when we dealt with this story dealing with the California task force. Read this article here because I have to transition to the uh, to the next topic here. Uh, the little known story of how slavery infiltrated California and the American West, the little known story of how slavery infiltrated California and the American West, August 11th, 2021. Okay, so read this, and this gives you some background information. Now, uh, I want to, uh, before we leave the story dealing with Harvard University, and uh, I want to go to, let's see, it was this one, uh, major takeaways here. On page two, dealing with the... uh, major takeaways where is that here okay on page two dealing with the major takeaways it talks about uh, in the caribbean in the caribbean this right here and i need to grab my notes again all right uh, so they talk about four Harvard presidents and slave people. And then they deal with um, let's see, the next page is 
the university benefited from plantation owners. The university benefited from plantation owners. Okay. And if you scroll down here, uh, you look at that sentence. So they break down the, the connection between the South and the North and the South growing content in the textile mills in the North throughout this period. So while new England's image has been linked to popular culture, linked to popular culture to abolitionism, but the report from Harvard university, the 134 page report from Harvard university said wealthy plantation owners and Harvard were mutually dependent for their wealth. Wealthy plantation owners in the South, largely in the South, and Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts, were mutually dependent for their wealth. Quote, throughout, throughout this period and well into the 19th century, the university and its donors benefited from extensive financial ties to slavery, the report said. These profitable financial relationships included most notably the beneficence of donors and uh, who accumulated their wealth through slave trading. The beneficence of donors who accumulated their wealth through slave trading from the labor of enslaved people on plantations in the Caribbean islands and in the American South from the labor of enslaved people on the plantations in the Caribbean islands and in the American South. So, so you mean that Africans on plantations in the Caribbean contribute to uh, the GDP of America also? I thought it was just slaves here in the US that contributed. So you, you mean that Africans in the Caribbean contributed also they were making money off of them slave owners here in this country were making money off of uh uh, uh african slaves in the caribbean huh and from the northern textile manufacturing industry supplied with cotton grown by enslaved people held in bondage the university also profited from its own financial investments the harvard university also profited from his own financial investments, which included loans to Caribbean sugar planters, rum distillers, and plantation suppliers, along with investments in cotton manufacturing. So you mean to tell me that Harvard University profited from loans it made to uh, white people who own sugarcane plantations in the Caribbean and they had African slaves. So African slaves were making Harvard University rich. So African slaves in the Caribbean were also contributing to enriching Harvard and these Europeans at Harvard University. Not just Africans who were enslaved here, but also in the Caribbean, which contributed to building America. Okay, let that sink in. Go read it again. Let that sink in. They weren't here. They were African. They weren't here in the U.S. They're in the Caribbean. But the money made off of them in Harvard University, the university also profited from its own financial investments, which included loans to Caribbean sugar planters. I don't think most of the slaves on those sugarcane plantations in the Caribbean were white people. All right.
Now, I want to go to, um, let's see here. Okay, let's switch gears here. So on the cross connection with Tiffany Cross, we're going to the clip I just sent you that's on Instagram, uh, Jalen. There was this discussion back on uh, Saturday, April 22nd, April 23rd, Saturday, April 23rd. Uh, it was Ellie Mastal, who I like sometimes. Ellie Mastal, he's, he's pretty interesting. African-American attorney. He's a Democrat. And Rufus Montgomery, he would have a name like Rufus. Rufus Montgomery, CEO of the Coscon, Cascon Group. And he he's a Republican. And the conversation came up, how have the Biden-Harris administration policies benefited African-Americans? Benefited us a lot. We're going to deal with the evidence on the other side of the break, but let's listen to a little bit of this clip here. Let's go to the clip, uh, Jalen, from Tiffany Cross, the Cross Connection, MSNBC. Okay, I'm just going to say it. I don't know a lot of black Republicans who really ride for black people. I mean, just take a look at just some, just some of the things they're saying. Why are we voting the way that we vote? What are the policies that we truly believe in? Because, you know, really, the, the, the black population uh, or the minority populations were generally more conservative. We just don't vote that way. And so they know that I'm a danger right. to them. Senator Lewis, one of his greatest senators has ever been, and for African American, it was absolutely incredible how they managed to throw his name on the bill of uh, the voting rights. I think it's a shame. First of all, you know, when you look at the bill, it just doesn't fit what John Lewis stood for. Hear me clearly. America is not a racist country. Okay. Those are all things hey, not hey, ever heard at the cookout. Hey, Let J- me assure Jayla, you. Just pause it right there for a second. For a just pause it right there for a second, Jayla. Okay, so just in case you didn't recognize the voice, that was Herschel Walker showing how ignorant he is. He's talking about John Lewis being a senator. John Lewis was a congressman. He was in Congress. He wasn't in the Senate. Those are two different chambers of the legislative branch of government. So uh Herschel Walker, who's running to be a U.S. senator. I don't this Herschel Walker know where the Senate is. I don't I don't understand this. But Herschel Walker, who's running to be a U.S. senator from Georgia, doesn't know that John Lewis, who is from Georgia, did not serve in the U.S. Senate. He served in the House of Representatives, which is Congress. Number one. Two, this dumbass just said who's running for who's running for Senate, who needs to be defeated, Herschel Walker. Baptized by Trump, anointed by Trump. He said that the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that named the bill after John Lewis, is a disgrace. John Lewis wrote the majority of the bill. Where did he get this boy from? A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Let's go back to the clip. Okay. Those are all things not ever heard at the cookout, let me assure you. all right, we'll continue this on the other side of the break. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation and Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Jeanette Davis is a well-established author with six published books. Black Survival in White America from Past History to the Next Century was published in 1995, and it delves into the history of African Americans before slavery up to contemporary times. The Great Divide Between Blacks and Whites was released in 2008, and her autobiography, Black Just Like My Mama, was published in 2010. Soulful Journey, The Business of Beings, was released in December 2021, and her two latest books, Echoes from the Heart, Love Throws Poetry, and Master Being Human, were both published in January of 2022. 
Jeanette Davis' writings delve deeply into the psyche of black people from ancient to contemporary times. She cuts no corners and leaves no stones unturned in relating truth, letting the chips fall where they may on both African and European doorsteps. Order Jeanette Davis's books today at Amazon.com. Search for Jeanette Davis and get to know her work today. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry. It's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me and she said, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9 10 a.m. Superstation Future Radio. Hey, if you'd like this type of information, you can support the African History Network. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. Uh, we have the information also on the homepage of our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting, pay some of the bills as well. This is our official cash app account, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. When you go to it, it'll say Michael and show my picture there. Uh, these other ones here that we have listed, these are fake African History Network cash app accounts. So I'm trying to get them shut down. We also have the PayPal button there as well. And be sure to register for the new 10-week online class I teach on Saturdays, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'a for understanding the understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. As soon as you register, you can watch class number one. We did April 23rd. Class number two is Saturday, May 7th, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. You don't have to be present in class uh, to watch it. Even a year from now, you can go back and watch the entire class. Okay, so I want to go back to uh, this clip here uh, from uh, the Cross Connection, Tiffany Cross. Let's go back to this clip, Jalen. With a record number of black Republicans running for office, who seem to represent the interests of the GOP and not necessarily the community, I really do want to have an honest intellectual exchange about why. So back with me now is Deb Correspondent for The Nation, that's Ellie Massal, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Allow Me to Retort, and making his cross-connection debut, this is a client, someone I've known for a long time, Rufus Montgomery. He's a lobbyist and a Republican political consultant, so I know he is definitely up for this conversation. Uh, so, Rufus, you know, you and I have known each other for some years, my friend, and I thought you'd be good to contribute some intellectual exchange to this. And I'm curious, what is it about the GOP that's so appealing to you personally well, you just heard, while so many GOP policies run contrary to the interests of the uh, black diaspora. It, it's it's what is actually shown on the media, Tiff. I, you just started out, and thank you for having me. You started out saying it's not talked about at the cookout. It actually is talked about at the cookout. Uh, across the country, African Americans are talking about what's going on with the uh, current administration, what's actually happening. I, I quote uh, Ice Cube in saying, 
that he talked to two parties. He talked to the Democrats, he talked to the Republicans, and one party said, we love what you're doing, we'll take some of what you have now, and we'll do more of it when we get reelected. And the other one said, talk to us later. Well, the time now is later, and in cookouts around the country, you'll hear people talking and having questions, African Americans asking questions, what are African Americans getting for that actual vote? You're giving 90% of the time, uh, most of the time, for one party, but what are you getting in return? I can talk to you for about 45 minutes about what Donald Trump did to help African Americans very specifically, we don't have 45 minutes. And I just want to be clear. So I'm not saying things aren't discussed at the cookout. I'm saying those specific black GOP members are saying things that you do not hear at the cookout. Maybe we go to different cookouts, my friend. But I, I, I want to take it to you, Ellen, because I do think Rufus made some really valid points about the Democratic Party. I'm certainly not here to be a mouthpiece for the Democrats. We can do a whole segment on that. But we're talking specifically about the Republican Party. Ellie, why, um, what do you think about Rufus' claim that Donald Trump did a lot to help um, the African American community, because I can pick off the top of my head some things that he did that was very harmful to the community. Your thoughts? Yeah, there are lots of things that he did to hurt the African American community, and I'm sure that he did, I'm sure some of the things he did helped a couple of, you know, brothers here and there. Look, I make a hard distinction between black conservatives, of which there are many, one of whom just was elected mayor of New York City, in fact, and these tokens who are out here right now shucking and jiving for their white Handlers. And the way that you can know the difference between a token and a person who just happens to have conservative views is that the black conservative has an argument for why their policies will help the black community. So I'm sure Rufus and I could go back and forth about where the capital gains tax should be. Rufus would argue that the capital gains tax would help black people, uh, lowering the capital gains tax would help black people build wealth. And I could disagree with that, right? Do you think Herschel Walker understood that sentence? Because there is no argument okay, that so pressing the votes of African Americans helps the African American community. There's no argument that police brutality helps black people get stronger. There's no yeah. argument that that gerrymandering away black representation in Congress helps the African American right. community, right? Okay, the problem so is that black conservatives right now, the ones who are still with the Republican Party, are running on an art on a on a platform that is against the interest right, that's against of our black interest. people. All right, pause, pause it right there. Pause, pause, pause it right there, Jalen. Pause it right there, Jalen. Pause right there. All right. We're running out of time here. We're going to continue this on a show on Monday. So for the sake of time, let's do this. Okay. Now, they, so they went back and forth. They really get into it like I would get into it and do it scientifically. Okay. So first, let's look at uh, whitehouse.gov. Neither one of them mentioned whitehouse.gov. Neither one of them mentioned this document here that I'm about to show you which was shut down Rufus and all these uh, other um, uh, Republicans running around, running their miles. Uh, he mentioned Rufus ended up mentioning the first step act, Donald Trump, Donald Trump ran up on a platform of law and order. And he, he talked about unleashing the police when he ran in 2016, he ran on a platform of law and order. Uh, the first step act was representative Hakeem Jeffries bill of the congressional black caucus. They worked the congressional black caucus worked with Trump to get it pushed. But when they but when the CDC was trying to get it passed under the uh, uh, Obama administration, it was blocked in the Senate by 
uh, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, Republican, and, and uh, Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama, Republican. Jeff Sessions is against criminal justice reform. He's against holding police accountable. And Jeff Sessions became Donald Trump's first attorney general who dismantled and reversed a lot of the uh, criminal justice reform that was taking place in the Department of Justice. Okay, but black Republicans won't tell you that. So let's, uh, if we look at this here, this came out February 28, 2022, uh, update to the uh, document that was at whitehouse.gov, October 2021. Fact sheet, the Biden-Harris administration advances equity and opportunity for black people and community and communities across the country. So what this th does is, this is a 19-page document. It goes through and it shows how the Biden-Harris administration policies are helping the African-American community for people who want to know. Now, I, when people who came to my vendor table this weekend at the one Africa power and, uh, power and, uh, and community conference, the one Africa power and unity conference, this is something that I showed some of them. They had never seen it. When we talked about this on the show Thursday, people had never seen this. This is at whitehouse.gov economic opportunity for black families and communities to talk about how the American rescue plan helped African-American families. The, the, the American rescue plan, the child, the child tax credit, cut black child poverty by 33%. No Republicans in the House or the Senate voted for the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan. They also included $46.5 billion um, in, uh, in, in, in rental assistance and uh, also uh, assistance for landlords as well and help a lot of African-Americans stay in their homes. It, it goes through and talks about the uh, $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. OK, and how it will uh, they talk about the lack of investments has fallen most heavily on black and other communities. The bipartisan infrastructure bill will replace lead pipes. It will replace lead pipes like Flint, Michigan. When when the, you have the Flint water crisis in Flint, Michigan, under that no good governor that we had, Governor Rick Snyder, Republican, a study came out and talked about how there were three thousand communities across the country that had higher lead levels uh, in their water than Flint, Michigan. This bill right here that only 19 Republicans in the Senate voted for, and I think only 14 Republicans out of over 200 in the House voted for, okay, this is going to eradicate that. This is going to help fix that problem. It will also increase, uh, it will also expand affordable high-speed internet in rural America. 25% of African Americans live in rural America. It will uh, go go through and help create reliable transit, clean drinking water, reconnect black neighborhoods divided by legacy uh, by legacy highway infrastructure like I-375 that ran through Black Bottom here in, in uh, Black Bottom in, in the Paradise Valley area here in Detroit. And when Secretary Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Secretary of Education, uh, Transportation, Secretary of Transportation, uh, gave a speech in the uh, at a White House press conference. He talked about how the African Americans were hurt by the U.S. Interstate Highway Acts, nineteen fifty-two and fifty-six, and things like this infrastructure. You had Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz from Texas. He said, "Oh, now roads are racist." So you have Republicans who want to deny the impact that infrastructure has had to African-Americans. Read this document. We'll continue this tomorrow. This is a 19-page document that goes through and breaks down how these policies from the Biden-Harris administration are helping the African-American community. So when you have your cookout, take this with you as well. This is the African History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right. All right, guys. Look, we got to get out of here. Uh, I'm going to post this link here. Oh, now also you have that. And then you have, um, you have this one here.
uh, from April 14th. So this here is from February 28th. Uh, then you have the one from April 14th. Well, let's look at this. You have the article from uh, the Grio that we talked about here on the show. Um, and I can't get these ads to close out. I hate these ads that the Grio has. I get this to close out. Well, anyway, I saw very, the, first of all, the fact sheet that I just showed you, that's 19 pages. I haven't seen anything in the media about this. It's at whitehouse.gov. It's free. Secondly, this article here from April 14th, 2022 by thegrio.com, African-American owned and operated. We talked about this a little bit on Roland Martin Unfiltered when I was on his show maybe three Fridays ago because we it was one of the topics we were supposed to talk about, but we did not have a chance to get deep into it because of time constraints and other things we were dealing with. Biden-Harris administration unveils government-wide action plans on racial equity. Have you heard anything about this? This is from April 14th. Have you heard anything about this? Have you heard anything about this in mainstream media? Biden-Harris administration unveils government-wide action plans on racial equity. Uh, and what this does is this lays out um, across 90 federal agencies with more. So the Biden-Harris administration unveiled Thursday. Uh, I think that was April 14th, Thursday. A massive government-wide action plan to advance racial equity across ninety across ninety federal agencies with more than three hundred strategies across ninety federal agencies with more than three hundred strategies and commitments laid out by government leaders. Have you heard about this? The announcements from the dozens of federal agencies are the start. Are the start of fulfilling an executive order signed by President Joe Biden on his first day in office to advance racial equity across the entire federal government. This is something that was initiated day one, January 20th, 2021. Have you heard about this? Okay, this ties into um, executive order 13985, executive order 13985, and if you go look at the um, fact sheet here from April 14th, 2022, that once again is at whitehouse.gov. So you can bring this up at, at the cookout. Biden-Harris administration releases agency equity plan actions to advance equity and racial justice across the federal government. Okay. Now, I still find it interesting. I haven't seen, really heard about this in mainstream media. On his first day in office, President Joe Biden signed Executive Order 13985, Advancing Racial Equity and Support for Underserved Communities Through the Federal Government. That historic order directed the whole of the federal government to advance an ambitious equity and racial justice agenda. Today, more than 90 Federal agencies, including all cabinet level agencies, are releasing their first ever equity action plans that lay out more than 300 concrete strategies and commitments to address systemic barriers in our nation's policies and programs that hold too many underserved communities back from prosperity, dignity and equality. Have you heard about this? This came out April 14th. 
I've seen very little in media period about this. The article, I think the only article I really saw on this was from the Grio, which is African-American owned and operated. Then they go through, this is a six page document. Okay. This is six pages. This is relating to the executive order and the results of the executive order, the policies being laid out. Okay. So they go through and look at the department of labor. Okay. The department of labor, the department of housing and urban development, the EPA environmental protection agency. Um, they look at the department of transportation, uh, as well. The department of justice. Uh, Department of Commerce. Department of Commerce is investing nearly $50 billion in broadband infrastructure deployment, affordability, and digital inclusion. Digital inclusion efforts to help close the digital divide, which is based upon racial discrepancies in who has access to high-speed internet and who does not, particularly for rural and tribal communities. 25% of African Americans live in rural America. They talk about the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, what is the Department of Homeland Security right here? The Department of Homeland Security is working to ensure that underserved communities are treated fairly in airport screenings by improving systems and enhancing training for officers. Department of Homeland Security is also engaging with and improving underserved communities access to grant programs that help counter help counter domestic violent extremism to better address the terrorism related threat to our country posed by white supremacists and other domestic terrorists. Then they talk about the State Department, the Department of Veteran Affairs. U.S. Department of Agriculture, Department of Education. U.S. Department of Agriculture is expanding equitable access to nutrition assistance programs and strengthening gender equity by imp implementing a national awareness campaign and expanding the implementation of online uh, ordering of uh, a, a nutrition program. Okay, this is what I'm, this is what I wanted. Department of Education is advancing college access and college completion by investing in HBCUs, TCCUs and MSIs, okay? MSIs are minority serving institutions, about a little more than 600 MSIs, there are 103 HBCUs. Community colleges and other resource public institutions and supporting schools to raise college completion rates for underserved students. Then they talk about the Small Business Administration, the SBA, is investing in improved technology to increase access to capital, increase access to capital for businesses in underserved communities and minority-owned businesses by streamlining program applications and integrating data. And they talk about NASA, Social Security Administration, uh, FEMA. Then they go and deal... Um, Embedding equity in every day. Uh, so you can go through and read this. This is dealing with um, Executive Order uh, 13985. Okay. And this uh, this document was released April 14th announcing 
the uh, policies that are going to be implemented across 90 federal agencies, across 90 federal agencies, um, more than more than 300 concrete strategies and commitments to address systemic barriers. So you can read the rest of this and uh, they'll probably have some more information at whitehouse.gov on this also. Have you seen about this in mainstream media? Have you heard people talking about this on radio shows? Besides me, Biden-Harris administration releases agency equity action plans to advance equity and racial justice across the federal government, April 14th, 2022. Okay, uh, look, we have to get out of here. Remember at the African History Network, you focus on educating and empowering inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. We'll continue this discussion on uh, tomorrow's show. Uh, and uh, be sure to register for the online classes I teach on Saturdays and Sundays. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. And we have a course bundle pack. You can register for all three classes for $120. It includes great African women in history, the mothers of civilization. Uh, you can register for all three classes for $120. If you've taken any of my online classes uh, in the past, email me at ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, ahnshow at africanhistorynetwork.com, and you'll get a uh, 50% discount, okay? We have to get out of here right now. It's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. Ido Network International, in collaboration with STL Black Woman, Gaka and Acta present the Royal Pilgrimage to the Americas, August 24th through the 28th. The African kings and queens are coming to you for business, networking, and sharing of Pan-African ideals. The venue will be the illustrious En Arts Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. A royal cultural experience and exhibitions, trade and investment opportunities in Africa, the Caribbean, and the Americas. A Royal Pan-African Summit hosting keynote speakers and a red carpet banquet. Come and witness our African Royal Coronation Ceremony. Register at www.idonetwork.org to book your ticket to wine and dine with African royalty. Vendor opportunities available. Get face-to-face -face with the royals who own the land and resources for business. Contact DACA for deal room information at 602-730-4572. Jeanette Davis is a well-established author with six published books. Black Survival in White America from Past History to the Next Century was published in 1995 and it delves into the history of African Americans before slavery up to contemporary times. The Great Divide Between Blacks and Whites was released in 2008 and her autobiography, Black Just Like My Mama, was published in 2010. Soulful Journey, the Business of Beings was released in December 2021 and her two latest books, Echoes from the Heart, Love Throws Poetry, and Master Being Human were both published in January of 2022. 
Jeanette Davis' writings delve deeply into the psyche of black people from ancient to contemporary times. She cuts no corners and leaves no stones unturned in relating truth, letting the chips fall where they may on both African and European doorsteps. Order Jeanette Davis's books today at Amazon.com. Search for Jeanette Davis and get to know her work today. STEM Forward, helping our community find their place in the emerging fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Join us for our monthly live stream on our website, stemforwardedu.org. Watch, subscribe, share. Also join our mailing list to stay up to date with STEM resources and opportunities. STEM Forward, the future is now. Watch, subscribe, share. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry. It's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me and she's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Abundant Capital Group is a real estate investment company with over 20 years of experience in real estate. They specialize in two areas of real estate. One, they solve real estate problems with creative financing solutions that give the seller the most money for their property. And two, they show individuals how to get a higher rate of return on their investment capital with Real Estate Note Investor. If you are looking to sell or need to sell your property, here is what they provide. Market value offer, even if you have little or no equity, they typically pay all closing costs, which can be thousands of dollars. They close on a date of the seller's choosing and the seller does not have to be out of the house at the time of closing. They take the property in an as-is condition and the seller is not required to make any repairs. Give them a call or email them today for a free consultation and see how they can help you with your real estate needs. Call them at 973-475-8488. That's 973-475-8488. Visit their website, AbundantCapitalGroup.com, that's AbundantCapitalGroup.com, and email them at ACG at AbundantCapitalGroup.com. Follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Abundant Capital Group.